Hello and welcome to this episode of The Reading Ramble, the regular podcast by Lancashire Libraries. On this episode, we're joined by Lancashire author Alan Veal, who's going to be talking to us about his books, The Murder Tree and The Titanic Document, and about his journey into becoming a writer. We hope you enjoy this episode. So should we start by, do you want to uh, sort of uh, to introduce yourself, talk about your writing and uh, a little bit about uh, what got you into into writing and writing books? Sure. Um, as you say, writing books, um, that actually has, has happened in relatively recent times. My first book came out in 2013 uh, and I started writing it probably about three years before that, but Really, the, the, the writing for me goes back to when I was a teenager. Um, at school, I'd, um, I'd suffered a little bit of uh, bullying at the hands of some uh, other uh, pupils. I, I should emphasize I was at a, a boys' grammar school at the time. And um, I was a shy youth at that particular era. So finding that uh, I could potentially get out of trouble by making people laugh uh, was a key to realizing that writing something down and making people laugh could be quite useful. So that was the start of it. I was using my imagination, which had been cultivated by growing up listening to the radio programs like the Navy Lark and Clitheroe Kid and uh, around the hall. And um, as I uh, came to leaving school and, and moving on into a, an office environment, there were occasions when boredom set in and a typewriter was available. So I used the combination of free time and some inspiration from my colleagues and started writing scripts with my colleagues from the office being the characters. And then I would circulate the scripts around the office for people to, to look at and laugh at themselves. So that was the beginning of my writing career, which I then took on into uh, theatre scripts when I started uh, belonging to an, an amateur dramatics um, theatre company around about uh, eight of 20, 21. And uh, for the next sort of 10 years or so, I, I tried all sorts of, of little pieces, some for, for comedy, some for, for drama. Um, and that's continued right through until the millennium. And um, during that time, I was uh, both amateur actor and uh, civil servant. And I was married and divorced, and then married and divorced. Which all adds to the experience. And they do say you should write from experience. So I've used what I can to um, bring myself to a point where having written for the theatre for so long and had a wonderful idea for writing a particular story based on, on true events, I just couldn't find a way of doing a theatre script. And that one just had to become a novel. And it was, as I say, around 2010, having left the civil service and found time on my hands, that I felt I should really make the effort properly and look into how you could write the book. And that was quite a learning experience as well, because um, there's a big difference in writing a book to writing a theatre script. 
so then you got into writing fiction stories eventually is that is that the next step or was there was there a, a further gap between that it was really an effort to try and, and and make sense of this idea in my head of um what became the murder tree um my first novel was a thriller based on a, a murder that had happened in glasgow in 1862. now i'd actually picked up a book that had been given to me by a wonderful old lady who was losing her sight because she couldn't read anymore. She told me to help myself do any books on her bookshelf that I might find interesting. This particular one was called Heaven Knows Who and it was a contemporary account written by Christiana Brand about this particular murder and the unusual factor being that the woman who was accused of the murder had herself accused an old man who lived on site at the time of having committed the murder himself. This was taken to court and whereas the, um, the judge was also convinced of this woman's guilt, it wasn't until after he had pronounced sentence that she came out or her lawyer came out with a, a story which was far more convincing with the guilt being placed firmly on the old man that was living on the property. So I was just entranced by the way that particular story unfolded and this dramatic turnabout, it's, it's really big twist at the end of the story. Um, and the question that was in my mind was what if there were descendants of people involved in that real crime from 150 years ago. What, what, what if those people alive today didn't even know they were related to somebody who'd been involved in a crime? And quite a bloodthirsty crime it was too. So, as I say, my first impression was, could I turn this into a stage play? And I really could not find any way in which I, I considered trying to turn it into a screenplay for a film but I had no experience in that direction and I felt it was too much of a long shot. Uh, whereas the idea of a novel was perhaps something I could learn. There's so many people have tried and, and learnt in, in the past. Sometimes you, you, you don't have to learn everything on YouTube. It's useful, but writing is, is one of those sort of things that you can learn about. Writers are made, not born as uh, Jed Mercurio has, has recently put it. So um, the first book for publication was The Murder Tree. And uh, as I say, that came out in 2013. I was uh, very pleased with the process. It took me three years to write, or rather two years and then a, a year to actually get out into the public domain. But um, it was worth it. And I was very pleasantly surprised by just how many people did give some very positive feedback. Uh, I'd even to be contacted by somebody who turned out to be a descendant, not of the, uh, the lady involved in the crime, but of, um, of a husband who was in fact himself accused of the crime at one. So you, you've talked about um, writing from experiences. In terms of your inspiration, um, when you write and do you are you are you a fan of like if you're reading 
are you reading thrillers and crime stories or yeah what's your, your kind of your go-to book to read there's no particular area to go to i, I don't think I, I do read uh a wide range of um subjects thrillers yes I, i'm I do think it's useful if you are going to write in a particular genre, then you should study the genre. Uh, and that will help you perhaps to, to realise what works and what doesn't. Uh, I certainly do find myself being very critical of other authors, um, well-known ones as well. Um, if I read something and I don't like it, then I'm, I do tend to quite, be quite vocal about it. Um, I'm not going to get diverted onto that subject though but um really i think there's 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 a good lesson to be learned by um by recognizing that if you have an ambition to try and find something in particular to write about and you put in the work you research you look for all the, uh, the material that is necessary that will help to bring about the the result that you want um ambition and perspiration will feed off each other and it's it's the combination of that really looking and putting in in the effort to get off your your, your back and just find what you need that will produce results um, and I've, I've got to say that for the four books that i've produced so far two of which are thrillers. One's a memoir and one is a, a traveler. And in each case, the the inspiration for those books has, has been different. As I say, in the first case, the, the inspiration came from reading a book and, and being inspired to something directly relating to the, the subject of that book, the, the murder that happened 150 years ago. Um, the second book I wrote was a memoir based on my mother's experience of having emigrated to Australia in 1949. Uh, and the material that I had available was letters that she had written uh, during the period that she was, was out there. And this was a, a period of, of, of world history. It was, a, it was a social document that reading it today, reading the letters today, takes us all back to a different world, pre the internet. We didn't have mobile phones. There weren't even that many people with a phone in their house in 1949, 1950. Um, I know we didn't have a telephone until about 1974. Um, so the inspiration for, the, for my mother's memoir came from reading the letters and thinking I, I ought to do something about this. Um, and then finally, uh, I had the, the great fortune to be able to actually research my mother's story a little further in, in a personal capacity because last year, I, this time in fact last year, I was in Australia following my, my parents' footsteps and um, um, looking at the places that they actually lived in. Um, and I was enjoying the touristy side of things in, in Australia too. I went to Sydney and had a look around the Harbour Bridge and the Opera House and so on. So I felt that uh, this was something that I, I could connect with, with others and uh, tell them about it. So uh, I used my website and, and created a blog 
to um, basically tell the story based on a journal I kept while I was in Australia. This all happened, by the way, I should say, during the course of the pandemic hitting the world. <clears throat> we'll go too far into that one. So um, if you like my mother's experience and then my experience was the inspiration for me to write a blog, which in turn became book number four, um, although it actually came, <laughs> came out as book number three last June. Um, I just completed writing the Titanic document just before I went to Australia. That's why I, I, I term the um, travelogue as a book number four. But um, yeah, so the inspiration for, for what I've written has come from different sources. Mm -hmm. Book number five, if there's to be one, well, that again could be is something entirely different. But uh, the idea of actually finding inspiration from just opening a book or, or just opening, say, your wardrobe and picking out something you want to wear, it, it isn't as simple as that. You, you've, you've got to make a little bit more of an effort to look for the stories, perhaps look in the, the press uh, about something that may inspire you there to feel, yeah, that could become a story. And certainly for um, the case of the Titanic document, because I felt that it was time to write um, a follow-up to um, my librarian character's adventures in the murder tree, I needed to find something that would interest him. And there had to be something historic. Uh, in this particular case, the historic event being the sinking of the Titanic. And then the, uh, the more contemporary twist came from the events of 2016, which for me um, were quite uh, defining in that that was the year that David Cameron introduced the uh, referendum on belonging to the European Union, affecting everybody in the UK and I could say everybody in, in, the, in Europe as well. So you, you briefly mentioned um, there about how the how the, the new book um, came to be. Do you want to tell us a bit more about about that story without giving too much away? Yes, it's difficult with a, a thriller not to, to give too much in the way of a spoiler. But um, for me, one of the uh, the key points personally uh, in 1985. Uh, was the discovery of the wreck of the Titanic. And uh, Dr. Robert Ballard found that in, in September. It became world news. And um, there was a book uh, about Titanic published uh, the following year. Um, I can't remember the full title now myself. It's something like Titanic um, uh, Great Ships or something. But um, I was given a copy of the book to uh, to look at during the course of its uh, review because I was doing some articles for um, a local newspaper. This was in Dorset, uh, where I was living at the time. So my fascination with Titanic started to build at that particular point in in my own personal life, um, and I decided that there was also some political tension. Uh, there, which could be used because uh, in November 1985, 
the Anglo-Irish Agreement was signed only two months later. So I've used those two particular items from history as the starting point for, for this particular thriller. So at the start of the story, set in 1985, which um, is after the, some years of the troubles taking place around Northern Ireland, we have um, a political situation where the cabinet minister, the Secretary of State for Ireland, is tasked with, let's just say, um, not so much covering up as trying to calm down the potential for any disruption to the Anglo-Irish agreement from a troublemaker writing what is potentially some blackmailing material that could be embarrassing for the government. And it relates to information regarding Titanic. I won't go into what sort of information is coming out, but it's sufficiently strong for that particular cabinet minister. He decides that there is a personal threat to him. And so he sets out to um, eliminate the threat in a homicidal way, using the, uh, the ploy of uh, terrorism activity to have somebody removed from the, uh, the potential threat to that particular signing of the agreement. It's the particular deaths that uh, emerge from that situation, including um, a, uh, a family that have connections in the UK, that then have repercussions in later life. Uh, so we move from 1985 to the present day being 2016, which is when the rest of the, the story is set. And uh, at that point, we also involve somebody from that particular family who is involved in writing a book about Titanic. And to get a long story short, she involves librarian Billy Vane in um, helping with some research. What she doesn't tell him is that she does have very personal reasons to try and steer away from this very same cabinet minister who still has strong political influences in the world today. And in fact, he's trying to kill her. Um, so you mentioned, um, you mentioned Billy um, as a character that's appeared in two books now. Um, and obviously you're speaking today to uh, Lancashire Library Service. So I think it might be of interest to some, to some of my colleagues. Um, is there a particular reason why um, librarians are featured in, um, in, in your writing so prominently? I've always had um, a particular fondness for libraries and uh, the, the atmosphere that you find in a library. Uh, and for the people that staff them. I was um, very much encouraged by my, my own initial experiences as a child, going to the library and live them. Uh, I, I fondly remember running up the stairs there to the junior library and, uh, and then taking the books downstairs to the counter. I remember there was a gentleman there, Mr. Sherman, who was uh, the father of a, another child of about my age. Uh, and he was always, very polite, um, very helpful. He always 
seemed to treat you as an equal, no matter what age you were. And uh, uh, I, I had great respect for him. And then there was another lady that um, um, was regularly featured in the, in the library too. Um, and I had uh, an experience in my um, early years at grammar school where uh, the English teacher saw fit to give us um, a reading from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. And he read a chapter from the first book, which so inspired me that uh, when I, I got home that night, uh, I went straight to the library to get a copy of the book myself. I had to ask where to find it. And of course, the librarians were extremely helpful. So I've, I've always been given this, this feeling of, yes, we're here to help you. We're here to guide you in, in your interests if you want us to. They don't push you, but they're always there to help. So I always had that good feeling about libraries and librarians. And um, when it came to the murder tree, somehow the, the obvious way in which I could uh, investigate the historic events from the present day, and I had an American girl coming over to Glasgow um, where she was uh, looking for information, what was going to be the most obvious way in which she could find out about this historical event, well, she would go to the Mitchell Library. Uh, so it seemed obvious that a librarian would become another major character in, in that particular story, and he would feature throughout. Uh, it seemed logical, therefore, to keep that librarian involved in, in a second outing, uh, especially when uh, it seemed to be his character that people remarked on when I, I got feedback from the first book. Uh, one particular lady said, there's a vulnerability about Billy Vane. And that seemed quite appealing to me as a writer that if you like, he's a main character and often your main character in a thriller is placed in a position where they need to be quite heroic. They're, they've got all kinds of obstacles in their path. How would somebody who's quite vulnerable cope with those obstacles? So that's what I've done. I've taken somebody who isn't necessarily everyone's idea of being a, a hero, put him in some pretty tricky situations, and yet given him a little bit of of spunk to be able to try and see himself through it. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about the research that you did for the for the story? Obviously, it involves uh, kind of different areas of the world and the, of, of the UK. Do you want to just explain a bit about that? Yeah. Well, yeah, first of all, um, I wanted to uh, move Billy out of um, the, the Glasgow area because I felt um, the first story focused on Glasgow in particular. We took him up to um, Perth, to Inverness. There was a, a little bit of story set in New York. Um, but for the, this particular outing, I wanted to, to bring him back into Lancashire and Manchester in particular, which is, is where I was born. And um, there is certainly something of, of this Billy Vane uh, in me. Um, I was born in Manchester and so was Billy. 
he's a bit, uh, bit younger than me, but um, he has some of my traits. I felt it would be appropriate to have had him start his career at the Central Library in Manchester in St. Peter's Square. Now, the, um, the female protagonist in the story also lives in Manchester, or to be more accurate, in the Salford Keys area. So Billy moves down from Glasgow to, uh, to visit Salford in particular, because he's, he's looking to try and contact this particular girl who has suddenly become very elusive. Um, I'm going to skip any details in that area because I don't want to give away any spoilers, but he does find himself making use of the facilities at the Central Library, which does have a very strong uh, part to play in the plot. And we also find that there are uh, events going on in um, the Ripple Valley, which is where I live. And uh, a few years ago, I was introduced to some friends uh, in the, the Longridge area, who have a house which uh, absolutely fascinated, fascinated me. And in their particular case, they, they have what would appear to be uh, on the, the surface a grand old Victorian house, red brick, and, um, and yet they've attached to it uh, a very modern extension. Uh, and somehow the two work very well. And I just felt I, I wanted to include it in my next novel. So this house has become now um, the fictional residence of a author, um, a well-known author, again, fictional. And it's uh, his house that becomes uh, another very important setting within the story. And uh, then I needed to find a suitable uh, high profile place for the finale. Um, there's quite an explosive finale in the Titanic document. Originally, I was going to place that at the Central Library, but um, for various reasons, uh, once I researched that um, venue a little bit more thoroughly, I felt I was going to struggle to try and make things as, as authentic as possible. So, uh, the story switched to Preston Railway Station. Anybody who's familiar with Preston Railway Station will certainly recognise the features that are described there. Thank you for listening to The Reading Ramble. And thank you also to Alan Veal for joining us to talk about his writing. You can find out more about Alan at his website, alanveal.com. You'll be able to borrow the Titanic document at a Lancashire library, and you can also listen to Alan's podcast, Dummy Cabs, available on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. We'll see you soon.